You are listening to the Wesley Seminary Podcast out of Wesley Seminary at Iwu. Your host today is Dr. Aaron Perry, Assistant Professor of Pastoral Care. We have a purpose. Since we are real, St. Irenaeus writes, we must have a real existence, not passing away into things which are not, but advancing to a new stage among things that are. Irenaeus expects that we will continue to grow, to mature, and to become more and more, really, the human beings that God created us to be. Joining us today is Dr. Beth Felker-Jones. Dr. Jones is professor uh, of theology at Wheaton College in Wheaton, Illinois. She's the author of several books, including Touched by a Vampire and Marks of His Wounds, Gender Politics and the Bodily Resurrection. She is a regular columnist for the Christian Century, and she is author of the book Faithful, A Theology of Sex, from which I just read our opening quote. Dr. Jones's idea is that in becoming who God created us to be, sex plays a role. Welcome uh, to the podcast, Dr. Jones. Thanks. Glad to be with you. Now, I start out with the quote from Irenaeus, because I think one of the things that our culture wants us to uh, introduce us to and that you talk about right at the start is that sex can be real or it can kind of be not real. It can kind of be uh, one of these things that does not quite uh, enter into the realm of things that is all that real or all that serious. Mm -hmm. Talk to us about this idea about sex being real and having a real impact on who we're becoming and how the culture might try to tell us it's not really that real. Mm. I do love that quote from Irenaeus as he uh, urges us onto maturity uh, because he says we're we're real. We, we matter and God made us the way we are. So I think that sometimes we're tempted to think that what we do with our bodies doesn't matter that much or isn't that real uh, because we as Christians know that our souls matter and we know that the spiritual life matters. And so we're tempted then to discount the body. Uh, but scripture speaks against that consistently, um, telling us that God made us as spiritual creatures, yes, but also as embodied creatures. And so our bodies are also real. They, they matter for who we are. They matter for our relationship with God. And the things we do with our bodies matter. Um, and scripture makes it clear also that sex is a central part of that. Uh, the ways that we choose to have sex or to not have sex, uh, the ways uh, that we live out um, our lives in uh, faithful marriage or in uh, single celibacy are things that have to do with real purposes. Uh, they have to do with our relationship with God and how we tell the world about who God is and, and they matter. God made our bodies, what we do with them matters. You have this great little parallel in the book comparing things that we might say about food or things we might say about sex and how we would really never say them about food. So you have a couple mm -hmm. of lines like this. Um, food is just for the body and what really matters is your psychological health. Bodies and eating have nothing to do with that. Food is a private matter. Don't ask where your food comes from. Nothing you eat can hurt you. Nothing you eat will help you to grow strong. Food should always make you happy. Pleasure is the only reason for eating. Now, we get those, that those are things that we would 
press against and that we would react against when it comes to food, and especially with some of our growing uh, knowledge of consumption and the ethics of food production, that we would react mm -hmm. against some of those statements. We would react against and say, well, of course, what we eat, what we put into our body has an effect on our whole selves. And yet what you say is that we can sometimes have, the, have this idea that if we substitute in the word sex for food, that those statements might be kind of commonplace, that sex really doesn't matter all that much. It doesn't have all that uh, big of an impact. Uh, what is, track for us a little bit, what is the connection that you continue to see between sex and food and how we ought to see those as related things in how we treat our bodies? Mm. It's endlessly fascinating to me that this fact uh, that our culture cares a lot about uh, the morality of eating, I think, um, but very little about the morality of sex. Um, and I don't really know how to explain that except to notice that it seems strange. Um, in the Christian tradition, food and sex have often been connected. Uh, they're connected uh, in scripture and also um, by many Christian thinkers through the centuries. And I think that's because food and sex are two of the most obvious aspects of our bodily life. We, we all notice um, that we want to eat, that we need to eat, um, and we all notice that we're sexual beings, right, who have desires and uh, so on. And so I think that the Christian tradition connects those things in its thinking about what it means to be created by God as an embodied creature and about what it means to glorify God in our bodies. Um, in the history of Christian thought, uh, as the church has responded against Gnosticism, uh, the false teaching or, or the heresy uh, that bodies are bad and God doesn't want anything to do with them, uh, the church has always said positive things there about food and sex. So the Gnostics think material things are bad, and so um, perhaps you should fast endlessly and stay away from feasting. And against that, uh, Christianity has said, God made food. It's good. Um, we can enjoy it. Their moderation is good, too, but it's a good gift from God. Um, and the same with sex. Some Gnostic groups uh, in the ancient world rejected sex altogether or rejected procreation uh, because those were seen as nasty material realities. And against that, the Christian tradition has said, God made bodies, God made sex, God made babies, they're good things. And Christians can enjoy those goods um, in a holy way, in a rightly ordered way. Uh, they need to be ordered because we're sinners and we mess things up, um, but we, could, we can and should also embrace those goods. And um, this still seems right to me, that food and sex are kind of basic aspects of embodied life. There are other aspects too, um, clothing, architecture, I don't know, um, but it's hard to get more basic than food and sex. I like in the book that you have this uh, really kind of quippy little ways of saying uh, the word real might be a little word, but theologians mean business when they use it. And the word good mm. might be a little word, but theologians mean business when they use it. And they mean business when they use the word, words like real and good because these are pointing to God who made everything that is. And you're right, because God who was good created everything, uh, material and spiritual, bodies and souls, apes and angels, everything belongs to that good God. One of the issues of our uh, contemporary society and culture that is uh, wrestling around with is issues of male and femaleness, male bodies, mm -hmm. female body, f 
female bodies. Um, you write, you write this, you say some things about masculinity and femininity are sheer artifice, sheer creation, uh, from a culture. And some things about masculinity and femininity are downright harmful to the beloved children of God, but that doesn't stop maleness and femaleness from being created goods. Male bodies are good. Female bodies are good. God made them and God loves them. So tell us, why do you think it's important to maintain some of this teaching on maleness and femaleness, especially in so much of our uh, questions around gender in 21st century Western culture? Mm -hmm. I think the biggest reason that it's important is that it's a thing we mess up when we're sinners. Um, all of us mess up maleness and femaleness under the condition of sin. And it seems pretty clear to me that one of the ways we mess that up is sexism. There's lots and lots of sexism in the world. Uh, the world isn't good at loving women. Um, and so against that sinful sexism, we can tell the truth, which is that God made women and men and loves women and men. It's a, it's a way of speaking back um, to the world's rejection, I think, of femaleness and femininity and saying, no, God made these things and they're good. Um, and that doesn't mean we can't learn something from the cultural conversations about gender and we can't notice that there are certain things that we assume about gender that are constructed and that um, maybe even need to be rejected because they, they do us harm. Um, but at the most basic level, I think it's really important to say, especially to women, because the, a sinful world says otherwise, God made us, God loves us, um, it's a good. And that's a part of uh, experiencing embodied reality too. We're not embodied as generic creatures, right? We're embodied um, with specifics uh, and sex, gender, maleness and femaleness is one of those specifics um, that I think God loves and cares about. Uh, other things are there too, race, culture, um, and, and various other differences. But I think God cares about us in our particularity, um, in our embodied difference. And that's one of the ways we're challenged to care for each other too. Um, it can be hard to love somebody who's different from you, uh, but the fact that we're created male and female suggests to me that we're called to love people who are different from us. Um, men and women are alike in lots of ways, and they're also different from each other. And and loving across that difference um, is a challenge, I think, from the creator. So let me let me kind of track down that area that part of our conversation just a little bit. Uh, you mentioned mm -hmm. that because in contemporary North American culture, it's difficult to talk about any kind of sex as bad sex or as wrong sex. We live with enormous cultural pressures, you write, to tolerate any and all private behavior. And yet you're sharing in a very pastoral way, how do we, because we believe other people are created in the image of God, that they are part of God's good creation, that their body is uh, part of God's good creation, that we want to treat them with proper and due respect and ultimately with love as one who is part of God's good creation. What are some of the ways that you have found helpful to talk about such difficult subjects that are maybe taboo or that are maybe meant to be kept private and uh, really n none of our business, right? How have you found ways to, to broach that subject maybe with your students or with other people as you've uh, tried to live out your Christian faith in a public way? Mm. That's, that's a good question. And I think it's hard because of the world that we live in. There are two things that help me. Um, the first one is 
remembering that sexual ethics has to be put in the framework of the gospel story. Um, I don't think it works to go out into the world and say, here's sexual ethics, here's how it should be. Um, that just isn't going to make any sense to the world at large outside of redemption and Christ and sanctification through the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, so I think we have to begin with the gospel story and think about sexual ethics within, within the framework of the gospel story. It's not just a set of rules that we should follow. It has something to do with who God is. And so I think um, our public witness must begin with who God is and with God's desire um, to draw people in um, to uh, his gospel purposes uh, for them. So that's one thing that helps. And I think it helps my students think about what it might mean to be in the world. Uh, perhaps it's not their job um, to teach uh, sexual ethics. Perhaps it's their job to uh, share the good news of Jesus. And then sexual ethics follows from there. Um, the other thing that helps me is to remember that we're all sinners. I think we have been tempted in the church to act like some sins are worse than other sins um, and to create scapegoats out of certain classes of sexual sin um, as though some sinners were worse sinners than us and we can think about how good we are over here. Uh, I think we have to remember that that's not the case, that every single one of us is groaning under the weight of sin and our desires are disordered by sin. And it's not a question of heterosexual versus homosexual or uh, promiscuity versus adultery, or I don't know. Um, it's, all, it's all distorted by sin. Um, there's none of us who are exempt from uh, that twisting under sin, and there's none of us who don't need um, the transforming power of the Spirit in our sex lives, right? Even if we're celibate, we need the transforming power of the Spirit in our lives as sexual beings, uh, perhaps sexual beings who are choosing not to have sex. Um, so that's the second thing for me, remembering that we're all sinners. This isn't about particular classes of people who are sinners. All of us are uh, together in this situation and in need of redemption. I like what you write uh, towards the end of the book. You write, the Christian life is not a life of following rules to earn rewards. The Christian life mm -hmm. is a life of grace, full stop. Uh, we can sometimes get this picture that we have to get our sin all together. We have to get our, our stuff together and then present ourselves to God, right? We get, we get our sex right, and then we can come to God. And your point is that that gets turned on its head. It's actually the other way around you, right? That, that we've gotten it wrong. God comes to us to start to make it right. And as you said, our sexual ethics then start to flow out of the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ has come to us to rescue us, to save us, to restore his good creation. And part of our sexual ethics is just working out the implications of who Jesus is um, mm -hmm. and what Jesus has done ultimately. So we have a picture of who God fully is and how God has created and is in the process of redeeming uh, the world. You mentioned in the book that one of the challenges or one of the things that you maybe grow tired of is this idea that we must, there's a, a certain reward or pristine keeping of the body, specifically female bodies and, and kind of the purity movement, which maybe mm -hmm. it's, it's pinnacle sometime in the 90s or early two th or, or 2000s. Um, what, what inherent danger do you see in that, in that theology of, of purity, that purity theology of keeping bodies pure until marriage? What are some of the dangers mm. that you see in that theology? 
Sure. Well, don't get me wrong. I'm in favor of purity, uh, and I think it's absolutely a, a joy and God's best for us if we um, uh, are, are able by grace to abstain from sex before marriage. So I, it's not that I'm questioning that vision of waiting, um, right, if one is going to marry. But I do think the way that we, that we teach about this um, has often gone very legalistic. So follow these rules and you can win this prize. Um, and the rule is don't have sex. And the prize supposedly is marriage um, and really great sex once you get married. And that's not the way the world always works. Some of us follow the rules um, and we don't get married. We don't uh, find a partner um, who uh, makes sense for us. Um, some of us don't follow the rules um, and nonetheless uh, have many good things happen in life uh, in relationship to sex. I think it's just a basic distortion of, of turning the gospel into um, merit badges, right, for, for deeds performed. And the part of this that particularly worries me is I think it is often worked out unequally. Um, young women are taught that they need to be more pure than young men. Um, and that's not the case. One of the most radical things I think about New Testament sexual ethics is that they're for men. Uh, that surprised people when Jesus made that clear. Uh, they thought that couldn't be the case. They thought really this was only a problem for women. Um, but Jesus makes it clear that purity is for men too. And I suppose because we're sinners, uh, we haven't done a good job of remembering that. And we've put a lot of pressure on young women as though their worth depended on their sexual purity when in fact their worth depends on the fact that they're made by God and created in his image. Um, and people end up with a lot of guilt, they end up with a lot of shame, they end up with a lot of anger. I also think that style of teaching sexual ethics focuses too much on teenagers and young adults, um, and it forgets that sexual ethics uh, is for all of us, for people in every age and stage of the Christian life. Uh, that old married people need sexual ethics um, as much as 20-somethings need sexual ethics. Um, so we act like it's a problem for a very specific period of life. That problem can be solved by marriage, and then there are no problems anymore. That's not the case. Uh, sexual sin continues well past adolescence. Uh, we, we know that's the truth, and we continue to need to seek uh, God's good purposes for us. It can idolize marriage, as though if marriage is the prize you're supposed to win, um, then we're not doing a very good job as the church of talking about the single life as a good calling and a good way to live the Christian life. Jesus, after all, was single, and um, if we act like his life wasn't a good life, we've clearly gone wrong. So those are some of my worries about the way we sometimes do sexual ethics uh, in church, especially for our young people. I think we absolutely should talk about sex with our young people, um, but we shouldn't make it sound like they need to earn a reward. I, I like uh, I like what you're saying because it, it reminds us that Christian ethics are not strictly social ethics, but they're theological ethics. And that mm -hmm. if we practice Christian faith in a way that says, your reward is, I think you put in the book, uh, mind-blowing sex, <laughs> then uh, that's not the way the world works. Um, that a Christian social ethic won't necessarily lead to the pinnacle uh, sexual relationship. Um, and in a way, when Christian ethics is performed simply as social ethics, that 
that that can make an idol out of sex, which is the the error that that part of North American culture can make as well. That it's still the same idol, it's just a different way of heading of heading towards it. And so, bringing it back to your theological yeah. ethics, which is sex is first about who God is and what God has done in creating us. That that's part of the story that we're trying to unfold. That's part of the story that we're trying to live into, and then express. Um, through our bodies in, in ways that are not strictly private, but are seen in our habits and our practices in our, in our families or in our practices of, uh, in our, in our married families or in our practices of, of, um, singleness and celibacy and how those relationships can come together in the church so that it's not, uh, not strictly a social ethic, a way of, of getting what you want, but it's a way of expressing who God is what God is doing and who God is making us as the church to be. That's the hope. And God is faithful. Mm. God is faithful to us. He's faithful to his people. Um, and when we are faithful sexually, we're mirrors in a certain way of God's faithfulness. We, we tell the world that faithfulness is possible, not because I did it, but because, because God did it. And that's who God is. Um, Christ is faithful to his bride, the church, and every marriage, I think, hopefully, can be a picture of that in some way. Joining us today has been Dr. Beth Felker-Jones. Uh, Dr. Jones is the author of the book Faithful, A Theology of Sex, uh, really a great uh, a great little book from Zondervan. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's a deep but very, very um, entertaining and enjoyable read as well. Encourage listeners to pick it up. Thank you so much, Dr. Jones, for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks so much for having me. My privilege to talk with you. And we trust that uh, this podcast has been helpful to you. And we look forward to connecting with you more through Wesley Seminary Podcast here at Indiana Wesleyan University. Thanks so much for listening and have a great day. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter under the name Wesley Seminary.